0: Brownell on News Talk 1340 KROC AM and 96.9 FM and today we're joined it's been too long Steve Lang Rochester Magazine hey Steve how's it going Andy that's oh, going well hope you're doing well I am yes I am
1: doing much better okay I had a little bit of a sickness there that just would not go away not COVID but it was just a virus that was hanging with me for a couple of weeks there but I'm over
0: that and moving on perfect timing we're here for summer and you're healthy it is beautiful out today. It is. We're looking forward to a great weekend, that's for sure. We're here to talk a bit about the magazine. We haven't for a couple months because you were kind of under the weather. And I, I guess what we're going to do is talk about the magazine that is out and then the one that's coming out or is out now. It's going to be out this, it's just coming out. Maybe that's the best way to put it. It's um, literally being delivered to our warehouse today. As okay. Okay. But the, uh, the May issue, which we didn't get a chance to connect on, features the best bartenders. Have you done the best bartenders in, in the past?
1: It's probably been a decade since we did. So I know we've okay. done it previously, but I think actually it was like in 2014 was the last time we did best bartenders. But that's always a fun one because, you know, they are there are people that have a very strong following. I mean, there are people who really love specific bartenders, the way they make drinks, the way they treat customers. And that really comes out in the voting that we do for the best restaurants. And this is a spinoff of that voting. But it's just really cool to see the number of people who really back certain bartenders in town, wherever they go. So a lot of these guys move and women move from, from bar to bar and they still have a following. It's really kind of a cool cult of bartender followers. Bartender groupies. Yeah, exactly. Bartendies.
0: So So, is there any commonality? Is it the way, I I mean, a drink's a drink, right? Or is it they make their drinks that much better than another person? Or is it their personalities?
1: I think it's the personality. I think the drinks are absolutely secondary. You've dealt with good and bad service. And very little service, when you think about it, is really as intimate as one-on-one with a bartender, right? If you're sitting at the bar by yourself or with one or two other people, that's as close and as often as you're going to run into a server. And I think people that spend a lot of time at bars and getting drinks, I mean, really do really do find a rapport with certain bartenders. So no, I definitely think it's a personality. And actually it's really cool because we've got full page photos of each of the bartenders and their personalities really come through in the photos. So just a really cool look at a group that sometimes gets overlooked.
0: Yeah. It's a, and I imagine it's, it's a kind of a career that you could uh, make some pretty good money if you uh, were on top of it with, you know, just the tips part of it. And only
1: that it's a career and we did do this story a long time ago, but it's one of those careers where you are as close to a psychiatrist as a lot of people get. <laughs> right? I mean, people, people who cut hair, people who serve drinks, Think those people, you know, deal with a lot of issues at a regular basis, especially and that is one thing that was common, especially in a place like Mayo Clinic, right? Where you've got someone who's who's at Mayo for, for treatment or a spouse is at Mayo or a kid is at Mayo and they're gonna go out and get a drink and they wanna unload on someone. That's where I think their personalities really shine through, the people who are able to listen and and really just listen. I mean, you know, that's what that's what a lot of people want. And that was one commonality that we did find with the bartender interviews is you know, they're just there for you. They they know these people need someone to vent to, and and it's it's often the case.
0: Now, way you describe it that way, they're not paid well enough. So, actually, I just thought
1: of this as we're talking about this. But with our all of our kids, I found out the gender, and my wife didn't. Right. So the doctor would tell me what the gender was going to be of the kid. My wife didn't want to know. I was badgered by my mother in law, my sister in law, who were dying to find out what the gender of the kid was, especially our first. And I didn't tell anybody, except I told a bartender at one <laughs> bar. I was waiting at a bar for a buddy. I was sitting at the bar, and he was asking me about what's going on. I said, "I'm, you know, kid is doing a month here, and then talking about it. And I'm like, I got to tell someone. So I told this bartender. So this guy knew before my entire family what the gender of our first daughter was going to be. So right there, I I unloaded on some guy who could not have cared about what I was going to tell him. Exactly. But he was
0: a good <laughs> the secrets these people hold. Yes, really. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the feature story uh in the May issue of Rochester Magazine which I thought was fantastic. Another uh, great Oh, you, know, you got it, you got it perfectly for me. I love baseball and I love Rochester history. So you got them both. You hit a home run. How's that? It
1: that's a great analogy, Andy, because it's baseball. Um but yeah, it's <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite pieces in a while and a really nice job by Tom Weber with a lot of research and writing on the story as well. But I guess we'll get to that as we'll leave that as kind of a teaser.
0: There we go. We'll be back in just a moment with more of Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. This is the Family Service Rochester Mental Health. On today's Rochester Today, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Oh, he teased it. Rochester history and baseball. Actually, one of the greatest baseball stories ever. The White Sox scandal. That is
1: absolutely true. And actually, one that I don't think enough people really realize the depth of it and the effect it had on baseball for years afterwards. But in 1919, the Chicago White Sox, eight of the Chicago White Sox, famous eight men out from the movie, were accused of throwing the World Series against Cincinnati, so they had gamblers in their back pockets, um, and they pretty clearly, although they were not convicted in the uh, U.S. court, they were convicted in the court of public opinion and in baseball's court, they threw the World Series, right? Swede Risberg was one of those eight, along with people like Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was a part of that, so this was 1919. Through the World Series were caught. The new baseball commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, banned these eight players for life from Major League Baseball. A lot of these guys were pretty young. I think Swede Risberg was only in his mid-20s. He might have been 24 or so.
0: He was a great ball player, too.
1: Great ball player, although he hit like 083 in the World Series and made like oh. four <laughs> errors. So clearly he was <laughs> seemed like he was in on the fix. And now, was what actually, was the clue? <laughs> he was actually considered one of the ringleaders of the fix. He was a, a really rough and tumble West Coast guy who was known to have fought Ty Cobb to a draw, who was one of the scariest guys in a dugout of pretty scary guys back in the day for the 1919 White Sox team. So he was banned from Major League Baseball. And they started a team, many of the eight men out, and they did barnstorming sessions around the Midwest. So they would come into Wisconsin, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, and play teams from here for money in front of fans. And that's how they made their living after their banning from Major League Baseball. Swede so Risberg was one of these players, and he came to Rochester. They He met a woman here, and they ended up getting married, and he ended up starting a dairy farm in Rochester, just outside of Rochester. So, for three seasons, I believe, 24, 25, 26, he played on one of two teams, the Rochester Aces and the Rochester White Sox, ironically, here, and started a life here. So, just a really amazing story of a very popular Major League Ball player who, just a few years after his banishment from Major League Baseball, started a life here, had a couple kids here, um, worked the farm here and continued to play baseball in this area.
0: And at the time, I don't think uh, those who don't follow history or even baseball history that well, baseball was huge, especially in this part of the world. It was not uncommon to have thousands of people go to a local baseball game that would not have been, you know, major league baseball. Let's put it that way, more regional ball. It was just such a popular... Spectator sport and activity at the time, and you know it remains popular, but nowhere near uh, what it was at that time. So this was a big deal when a guy like Risberg came to play to Roche- play in Rochester.
1: And there's just so many other cool ties. So the coach of the Rochester team of the Rochester Aces was Claude McQuillan, Bony McQuillan, who was a famous a- famous athlete from Rochester, played for the. Uh, Green Bay Packers right before they were actually part of the National Football League. He was a mayor here, and he signed Risberg. He knew it would be a big draw. There was a lot of pushback, a lot of, uh, there were stories, comical stories, in the Minneapolis and Twin Cities papers really ripping on Rochester because there was, Andy, like you talked about, there was some real rivalries with the different town ball teams playing each other. So some of the bigger city teams who were regularly dominating Rochester didn't want some previous pro who'd been banned from baseball playing in Rochester. But the fans loved it, and they turned out in droves. Like you said, Tom Weber, he and I co-wrote the story. He opens it up with a a story in 1925 with 2,000 people at Mayo Field to watch Risberg and the Mayo, you know, the Rochester Aces play a game. So, yeah, you talk about popularity. This was like in October of 1925, and there's 2,000 people at Mayo Field watching a town ball game.
0: He must have been Big man on campus, you know, if you think about it here in town, he must have been a big deal,
1: so he was a shortstop in the major leagues, a very good defensive player, not much of a hitter, but a, a really good defensive player and he ended up pitching when he came to Rochester, and his stats for those seasons with Rochester and I'm trying to find them here are just are stunning. He went for twenty in the nineteen twenty three season he went twenty and five. This is a guy who played infield in the major leagues and pitched in Rochester. He went 20 and five with 200 plus strikeouts as a pitcher. And this was a guy who had 205 in the majors, hit 382 in his Rochester season and a lot of home runs. And that was his stat line through all of his three or so seasons in Rochester with the, you know, 20 wins, 200 strikeouts and hitting 350 or so just a, uh, you know, had just a dominant force. And and to see that day in and day out in Rochester, baseball must have been a really cool thing.
0: Yeah, and, and the, the, the whole Black Sox scandal continued to haunt him, right? I mean, eventually, he got booted off the Rochester team.
1: So it was almost, it was interesting because they had to find leagues who didn't adhere to the Major League Baseball banishment. So at the time, I think it was the Southern Minnesota League that the Rochester Aces were in. They did not adhere to that rule. But in 1926, partway through the season, again, lots of politics, right, Andy? Because there were a lot of people from the cities and other teams in the Southern Minnesota League saying, nope, we need to follow baseball's <laughs> finishing rule because one guy from those eight happened to be playing here. He brought in a ringer. Yeah, exactly. And so in 1926, they did change the rule and Ritzberg was no longer allowed to play here. He was really bummed. He had a farm here. He invested in an auto company here he and his wife um had two kids at that point um his son mickey and robert and his wife was mary who was a dental assistant here in rochester they met during one of these barnstorming sessions and they fell in love and had a couple kids and were married for boy i think 30 or 40 years before she passed away but uh yeah, so he was really bummed. He wanted to stay in Rochester, loved it, was working hard at the farm. There's a great story in 1926 about the, with the PB, Rochester Post or Bulletin, whatever it was at the time, interviewing him. And, and he was throwing hay and working the farm, and then he'd go play baseball when the games were happening.
0: That's good for the shoulder and arm, that throwing the hay. Oh.
1: And so... So he couldn't give up baseball. This was a guy that was in his blood. And we really lucked out with some interviews I'd done about a decade ago with his son, who has since passed. And then I did track down his grandson, Jeff, who still lives in the cities. He actually works for the state, lives in the cities. So I was able to to track him down in a kind of stalkerish way. But uh, he was really willing to talk and actually sent along a lot of really cool family photos of of Mary and Swede and the two the two kids and and had a lot of great stories about his grandfather great-grandfather grandfather Oh, big so,
0: grandfather yeah
1: yeah so that was a really cool piece of it and and it was so Swede could not give up baseball he continued to play for a number of years after and ended up moving back out west and at one point lived in Mankato to play out there because even with his farm here he wanted to keep playing and And finally moved back out west where he was from originally and took the family out there.
0: So he had to play well into his 40s then.
1: He did. And then he actually, this is kind of an interesting side note that we didn't get a chance to include in the story space-wise. But he had been, and this might be a story that was a little bit embellished by Sweet himself, but he he was definitely spiked. A couple times, very hard back of the day, which was really common. Metal spikes. Guys like Ty Cobb were sliding hard and feet first, and you know, feet thigh high, trying to really jam you up. And he was spiked a number of times, especially playing shortstop in the 1910s in Major League Baseball. And he ended up losing one of his legs at one point later in life, and then worked to become a. I think he bought a bar, a saloon. He went from being a bartender to a saloon owner in out west, but. He had lost a leg, and he claimed it was from the infections he'd suffered from the spiking oh, wow. he'd, he'd received back in the nineteen eighteen season.
0: But you mentioned the pictures, and they're part of the article. and They are really neat pictures, and one of them is one of the teams he played on. And if you look at the gloves they're wearing, <laughs> <I know. laughs> there's a there's a picture. I don't of know right if you, of, how you would catch a ball. <laughs> there's a picture of twenty
1: six Rochester Aces, and it looks like the gloves were made by you and I on a whim with some stuff we. <laughs> some leather we found in our garage i mean it just it it is it was a different era certainly then
0: but then again you go back and the 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 rochester um oh my goodness it's terrible uh the local team that plays the 1800s baseball out at uh, olmstead county history center the roosters yep yeah thank you they play with no gloves Yes, so it was and you talk about
1: baseball being in its heyday. A lot of that was attributed to those kinds of changes, right? So around 1908, 1910, the equipment started getting much better, players like Ty Cobb were really taking over, they were starting to play in a more organized way. And by nineteen nineteen, baseball was really a not necessarily a relatively young sport. The National League had been around for what, thirty years at that point, but it was like you said, it was it was
0: hardcore Americana. Exactly. And the other neat part of this story I really like is kind of the the Rochester connections to the Black Sox. Um, you have this obvious connection where you had one of the you know disgraced players living in our community for quite a few years, but you also had Archibald Graham, whose connection was the whole Field of Dreams movie with um, Shoeless Joe Jackson. And Archibald Graham, of course, his resting place is here in Rochester.
1: Yep. Moonlight Graham from from Field of Dreams. Great story about a a major league player who, right, he was in a game defensively, didn't get a chance to bat. Right. And then gave that up to, he didn't want to go back to the minors. And so, no, I want to be a doctor and became a a very famous pediatrician in the Duluth area up north in, in Rochester. and again, met a a Rochester woman and ended up being spent a lot of time here and getting buried here. And I don't want to give too much away, but I'm actually working on another story of a big baseball tie that I kind of ran across haphazardly that um, I'll hope to have for you pretty soon here with a a real tie to a a 1920s powerhouse baseball team. Oh, fantastic. Well, from,
0: you know, this story and then the Archibald Graham story, Dot Graham You'd think that somewhere along the line, these baseball tours, that go on all over the place in the country because baseball fanatics do this sort of thing. They hop in tour buses and they vacation like you would vacation, let's put it that way, except for it's all baseball stuff. That they would and include honestly, Rochester as one of their stops because of this.
1: And honestly, I know the Archibald Graham gravesite gets a decent amount of traffic. It's not unusual to see baseball sitting on his on his... It's got a flat headstone and Baseball cards, that sort of thing. It's just a really cool tribute to a guy who who played baseball, but was really known for something much bigger. Being, uh, you know, a famous doctor and and really actually did some stuff to revolutionize uh, the pediatrician world, pediatrics, and also, um, you know, was obviously immortalized in Field of Dreams in a
0: That's, that'll very be very traditional way, but. Somebody will have to put up a sign down there in Dyersfield when they build that new major league park down there. Travel to Rochester just 80 miles away and go see the gravesite of Moonlight Graham. And even Mayo Field,
1: the history there, to know that people like Swede Risberg played there, like Boney McQuillan played there. One cool part, too, was McQuillan, for his part, once, Risberg had to leave he realized the draw that these guys had and he actually reached out to a couple of the other band eight men out including Dickie Kerr and Eddie Seacott and uh, was unable to sign either one of them to play in Rochester but he realized hey this is a big draw for us and these guys are really good so he he made his pitch but didn't didn't happen but you know the fact that that Rochester took in and really accepted. I mean, the the newspaper articles and the fan response is glowing for what kind of person Risberg was, at least here in Rochester. And again, he had local roots. He had a, a yeah. dairy farm that supplied milk to Mayo Clinic. He had um, uh, invested in a local automobile company. He was fairly active in the community, had two kids that were born here.
0: Yeah, the world has changed. That's for sure work on a farm and play ball, (laughs) especially a
1: guy who had played professional baseball. Yeah, And he was complaining because he wasn't making enough between the farm and um, and baseball to do the kinds of things he wanted income wise. But he also said when he was barnstorming, he made more money there than he did playing in the major leagues, which is a big reason that he gave for, or his, his teammates gave for taking the payoffs, which were, you know, rumored to be fifteen dollars or $20,000, they were promised to throw the World Series, and these were guys who might have made, in Risberg's case, like $3,500 a year.
0: Yeah, I can see that would be tempting, but at the same time, considering what happened to them, uh, in hindsight, a $15,000 payout not worth it. No, it
1: never is, right? And you got a guy like Shoeless Joe Jackson who is still revered in the baseball community because while he definitely knew of the fix, may or may not have taken money in the fix, certainly played very well in the World Series because once he got on the field and he was, you know, the stories there, he was one of the guys saying, hey, come on, guys, this is is not worth any amount of money to intentionally lose to a team that is far inferior to us. The day the Chicago White Sox of 1919 were considered by far the best team, and they were a big favorite over Cincinnati, which is why
0: the betters targeted them. And it was the World Series, for crying out loud. Okay. We do have to take a break for news. Steve Lang is here, Rochester Magazine. One of our, well, hopefully every month we can visit. And we'll be back in just a moment with more Rochester Today on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. This is the Family Service Rochester Mental Health Minute. Rochester Today. On this Friday morning, it's Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine. Talking about the May issue because we missed him last month. Uh your odd Chester column in this particular issue. I, do, you, do your kids give you anything for Father's Day for crying out loud? <laughs> They actually,
1: probably embarrassingly because they were real, <laughs> you know, brought up that way, like a lot of the things they secretly like a lot of the things I pretend they don't like. And I think one of those is family vacations. In fact, this just happened like two nights ago. My oldest daughter She said there's a Fleetwood Mac cover band playing in one of those city parks in Minneapolis by her. She had won some free stuff through the Holiday gas station app. Uh, And uh, no one else was around. So she's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to walk to Holiday, pick up my free stuff. She had like a pop and candy bars. And I'm going to walk and go watch this Fleetwood Mac concert by myself. And she texted back like two minutes later, oh, my God, I've become dad. Yes. (laughs) Because it was exactly the kind of thing I would do. So, yeah, this column Uh, is about family vacations, and I just talked about, you know, I always am pushing for these historically centered slash kitsch centered family vacations. I make the kids go to all these ridiculous places, but I think it's one of those things that after a while, they secretly started to love.
0: Secretly. They'll never (laughs) admit it to you. Very secretly. I believe they like them more than they let on. When you're finally on your deathbed, they'll come up. Dad, I actually did enjoy myself on that vacation. Well, because even they still love going to the Dells,
1: all the kitschy things I love. But yeah, so I wrote about uh, some of our, I think, three of our kind of classic family vacations that I put together over, you know, the last decade, and we've taken together as a family. Okay, so
0: you actually did go on these vacations as
1: a family. We did two of them, and then one of them, I think... um, Everyone kind of bailed on it. We ended up going to the Dells instead. So the last one, I think, I did myself <laughs> on the motorcycle just out of spite.
0: The last one is the only one I was probably interested in going on.
1: So it's always, you know, wherever we're going, I'm trying to find some other historical tidbits. And because of the area we live in, a lot of those are around Lewis and Clark. So whenever we're going somewhere, like we're going to driving down the Mississippi, it's like, oh, yeah, then once we get to St. Louis, now we can spin off. And that's where Lewis and Clark, you know. Started their expedition on west, and we can follow that for the first you know, 50 miles of that. So I do a lot of that. We do – I do. There's not a historical marker that I can pass very easily. There's not a kitsch spot, mustard museum, doll museum, vinegar museum that I'm going to pass without making the kids stop and see this kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I guess – I guess maybe it's less appealing than, you know, when I talk about it out loud, that it probably really is.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned the Lewis and Clark theme of a lot of these vacations. Do you make them read about Lewis and Clark or watch a documentary before you go to give them some sort of context? No,
1: but, you know, we're certainly stopping. So there was one trip where it had a lot of Lewis and Clark stops. You know, would be like, here's where the only person died of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So we'd stop at that historical marker, read it. I'd have way more background info than they probably cared to hear about. But, um, but you know, my kids are also kind of geeks and really like a lot of the trivia stuff. So, I, like I said, I think they <laughs> secretly appreciate the work I put into these. But I'm always accused of being an over-planner when it comes to vacations. I love to have a lot of knowledge about where we're going, whether we're going to stop and use it or not. So, But, yeah, that's one of the things I've kind of cursed my kids with.
0: I, uh, one time we made the trek to Duluth when the kids were young and, uh, they were appalled that I made them listen to the entire song, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, (laughs) because obviously you're going to Duluth. That's part of the lore of the Duluth area. It's, It's, uh, you can't go there and not talk about it. And they're like, ah, ancient history, dad. And then the song, of course. They could not understand the appeal of the song. But now, you know what? They're older. They both like the song. so. Yeah,
1: I can actually see you being a lot like me when it comes to the kind of nerdy <laughs> historical tidbits. So, yeah, in fact, I was a founding member of the Edmund Fitzgerald, or the Gordon Lightfoot uh, Society in my high school in Bay City. You, you had
0: me. a society in your high school. We did.
1: You had to memorize the lyrics or <laughs> a bunch of facts and stats about the Edmund Fitzgerald and <laughs> had to know the captain's name where they left from, what they were carrying. And I actually tried to get Gordon Lightfoot to speak at our National Honor Society event, but I didn't have any luck.
0: I was just in Duluth last weekend, and it was kind of funny. The, uh, the same kind of story you're telling about your vacations. Obviously, this is wasn't a vacation. My daughter now lives in Duluth, and so she lives in an area called Miller Hill. So the minute I see Miller Hill, I'm curious who's Miller, <laughs> because everything up there is named after, it's the Miller Mall, it's Miller... Miller hill plumbing it's everything, so I asked her, do you know who this Miller guy is or gal i are you at least a bit curious and never gave a thought to him to give her credit, They looked it up and gave me the history, and it's kind of a boring history. It's the guy who was able to obtain the state funding for what is now highway fifty three that connects Duluth to the iron range okay I was like wow that's uh, that's pretty incredible
1: that's yeah i I'm the same way, I love that kind of thing and it, like I said, it has definitely shown up in a number of our family vacations. Even this weekend, my daughter and I are going, she wanted to do a bookstore tour. So I was looking up best, you know, independent bookstores in Minnesota and trying to make a little loop where we could spend the Sunday driving that. And and there's a great route that goes from uh, Winona up to Red Wing. And then I think maybe over to Hudson, Wisconsin, from what I'm finding so far. And I've got a bunch of you know, quirky stops along the way, especially in the Wisconsin side. The, the rock in the house, the prairie moon garden in, you know, that uh kind of, what area is that? Like Alma area. So, sure. the, so even then, when we're doing something that she wants to do, I'm peppering it with possible stops that are, it's kind of quirky, historical
0: or kitsch spots. What I want to ask you about is sounds like the one you did not take as a vacation. You did by yourself, the Route sixty six. Because that's kind of a popular thing, isn't it? To follow the old highway. So we did
1: actually, we did a little of that with the family at one point and it was a little less appealing to them. And even to me than I thought there was where we were at that point, there was less of it, but my dad and I on a motorcycle trip got down to where a lot of the uh, highway still exists. And there's still the kind of uh, cool roadside attraction pieces. So especially like down in New Mexico and uh, that area. There were some really cool stretches of Route 66. Some of it, you know, you're driving through a little town and and there's a three-mile stretch just outside of town that still exists and you can still see some of the the foundations of the roadside attractions. But um, there are some pretty good stretches of it, but you really kind of got to pick and choose.
0: Okay. It's one of those I've thought of doing in the past, but now you've kind of... Steered me in the other direction.
1: Yeah, you know, and I don't want to be too souring, but I love that kind of stuff. And it just felt like we'd be driving 40 miles to find a two-mile stretch that still represented Highway 66. And then the much better spots were in the the southwest to me where you could still find the old, the feel of the old road, right? It wasn't built up around it with some sign saying, here's what it looked like then. When you're in, like, uh, the New Mexico area for sure and there's some stretches – that was way more appealing for me because you could feel like you were on a, you know, a, a highway in the 1940s or 50s or whatever the that
0: heyday would have been for that era. So for that, so you go of, fly down to Albuquerque and rent a convertible. That's what you're telling. Yeah,
1: me. Yeah, and actually that is a really cool spot. So there's a lot of really good stuff in that area that I found. You know, we're we're kind of pick and choosing places from Chicago to St. Louis, and those are, in my mind, they were pretty hit and miss.
0: Okay. Enough of the vacation planning with Steve Lang. We'll return in a moment (laughs) on Rochester Today on Rochester's News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Ever feel like your insurance company doesn't know you? Magazine on Rochester Today. I'm Andy Brownell on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Steve, you mentioned you have the new edition getting sent out as we speak.
1: That and it should be online pretty soon here within the next few days. Right now online there is the hundred days of summer calendar. Oh, so there you this go. is our annual special double summer issue, June, July. And as part of that, we do a, a tip-in pull-out calendar. So just kind of gummed into the magazine. It's twenty-four pages. You can pull that out. And it's got a, a calendar of a hundred days of summer and one or two events for every day. And it's a lot of work, but it's a really cool edition of the magazine. So that's always a big part of our June, July.
0: And then you cover all the community festivals, all those sort of things that are happening. You missed the cheese fest over in Pine Island. It's already happened.
1: Yep. That just got done right this past weekend. um, And that was in there, but, um, and this year was really a step up from the past couple of years. This was one of the first years where we've seen people were pre-planning for summer. It just seemed Obviously, two years ago it was basically shut down. Even last year, people were really leery about. Right, it was hard to get bands in March or April for June, July, and this year people had really pre-planned, and looks like far, far more of the summer events are are business as usual. So there's a lot of great stuff. Um, so that's in the in the middle of the magazine. And then there's a great piece of art by a local artist, Sheila Sullivan, that is the cover. And there's going to be a couple of pieces I think you'll really like, Andy, as far as the historical thing goes. But Pat Ruff, who's a phenomenal sports writer for the Post Bulletin, did a story on Linda Barsness, who was a John Marshall high school high jumper, who still 35 years later has the state high jump, state meet high jump record. For girls, and then I did a story on a phenomenal interview with Rod raver just a guy who really had a great story and and told it in a very open way and he still holds the state high jump record not just the state meet but the entire state high jump record from nineteen seventy three so almost fifty years later wow. his record of seven one still stands and Rod is a guy who um Went through a lot after that record. He got in a motorcycle accident, and hurt his knee. He was an Olympic hopeful for the 1976 Olympics, was jumping Division I, um, then came back to RCC, set some indoor high jump records, and then got in a motorcycle accident, and his knee was never the same. And it took Rod, admittedly, probably a decade before he was the same. This was a guy who, um, from his own accounts, had put a lot of his uh, personality into his high jumping, and when that was gone, he spiraled into a pretty dark place for almost a decade, and then had a um, uh, divine intervention, literally, that turned his life around. Wow! And just a really cool story, and and like I said, really well told by Rod. So I'm really looking forward to that, which comes out. Hopefully, it'll be online, like I said, sometime this week, and the magazines will be out. Sometime this week, but it's one I think you're really going to like. It's got all that you love, the, the personal touches and the,
0: the historical aspects. It just sounds like it's super inspirational as well. It There's really was. Andy, tragedy and, I, and, and redemption.
1: You and I have been really lucky, right? Where this is the thing that probably keeps us going at times is when you get to tell someone else's story that has all of those elements where, you know, I know after writing this story that people are going to see this and think, I want to change my own life. I mean, it's just one of those stories that, you know, is goosebump inducing. And we spent a lot of time, Rod and I, talking about this. And, you know, just had a few of those, you know, teary-eyed moments of him, you know, telling the story and me listening to it. And, you know, those are always really amazing to get into print or on air. And this is one of those. I think it'll be... I think so it'll be something that that a lot of people see themselves in, in whatever form. And and you know, he was very open about how low he was, and 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 found the strength to come out of it when a lot of his friends didn't.
0: So another mushy, sentimental piece by Steve Lang. <laughs> yeah, exactly, although just a lot longer.
1: <laughs> so it's like that, but the long 3, words. Yes. No, it's just it's a great story, and I. I always appreciate when sources are willing to open up because I think some people really realize how powerful their stories can be for other people, even just the smallest things. You know, like I said, we do this random Rochester right that Jennifer Kosky does every month. Everyone says they don't have a story. Everyone's got a great story. It's just a matter of being willing to tell it.
0: Yeah. That's what I love about that column is these random, you know, it could be a birthday party or a restaurant and somehow you eke out some, something that's happened in their lives and you go, wow, that's really cool. Or they're related to somebody or some, you know, some tidbit in, that makes it stand out. But back to the the high jump business. What did you say the record was? Seven foot? Seven foot one in wow.
1: 1973. Wow. So the Fosbury flop had just yeah. basically been invented in the late 60s when Dick Fosbury set uh I think the world record at the Olympics in what, maybe 68. And so Rod was a tall guy, was you know, six, five, whatever he is, long, thin, um, fast. And he realized right away that this new style really suited him. He'd done the Western roll before we just kind of jumped <laughs> over. And so he had never jumped six feet in competition. His coaches always kind of held him back when he won the meet or reached his peak. They didn't let him jump anymore, and so that last meet of his senior year, they turned him loose, and there were five thousand fans in St. Cloud for the state high school track meet, and they basically brought the entire place to a standstill. And Rod was the sole focus of those fans and athletes as they made an announcement that he was going for the state record. He actually tried to break Dwight Stone's national record, which was seven one and a half, so he tried seven one and three quarters and didn't make it but his seven foot one jump has held up for almost 50 years. And 50 you think about years. that in high school track with all of the technological advancements in, in training and techniques. Yes. The fact that Rod Raver, a kid from JM who set his best jump on his last meet of his high school career, it's a, that alone is a phenomenal story. And then to hear how yeah. it affected Rod, obviously just, just built into it. So Pat Ruff's got a phenomenal story on Linda okay. Barsons and her jump alone, but Rod had some, some more depth to how that actually affected him. So
0: I look forward to that. That's for sure. That, that is incredible. You mentioned the technology and the training techniques. That's makes it doubly amazing that 50 years later, that still stands. That's amazing. Even
1: now there was a big story in the PB about two Rochester high jumpers who are possible favorites at state they're jumping 6'6". Six, six. I mean, that's seven inches shorter than Rod Raver jumped 50 years ago. It's, 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 the PB at the time called it the greatest high school feat in Minnesota history. And they were absolutely right because 50 years later, it still held up.
0: So is there any footage of this? Did anybody get it on video or, I mean, that's the early days of video, record, portable video recorders, but, you know, good old fashioned eight millimeter film.
1: We tried, we couldn't find any. We do have okay. some photos of him jumping in other meets, just jumping. Um, but no, I oh, I, wow. I hammered that hard, but there was no luck there. But uh maybe that's better.
0: Yeah, you know it's one you know, one good thing about the cell phone technology is any event like that it's captured on video by hundreds of people probably.
1: So. Yes, and you know, my imagination of what the crowd reaction was like based on reading about it and hearing it is probably you know better than actually if I had this if I were was seeing it on video. So yeah. um there's some some beauty about the nostalgia the fact that we don't have that kind of look at it and we're relying on on newspaper and, and first hand reports.
0: I agree with you. The older I get the more nostalgic I get as well. So not quite as sentimental as Steve Lang, but getting close.
1: <laughs> no, and, and, and like I said, I this story really, really hit all the buttons for me because it did not have the nostalgia and it did have that that human redemption element that I think we all love.
0: Yep. Well, excellent, Steve. We can talk more about that, get more in depth after I get a chance to read it and, and peruse through uh, the newest issue. And I look forward to meeting you again for Rochester hey, thanks, today.
1: Thanks a lot, Andy. It's always really good to hear from you. Yeah,
0: it's great to see and hear you as well. Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROCAM
1: AM ninety 96.9 FM. Hi, I'm James Raby for Livia Weight Control Centers and